Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. Now, before you get too excited, I am not going to re-preach what Tommy preached two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, the last part of Romans 11, but because we're getting into Romans chapter 12, we've, we've got we've to hook this car with the last car, okay, for the train to, to operate correctly, and so I am going to go over a little bit of the end of Romans chapter 11, but this morning, uh, the subject is the mercy of of God, a life shaped by the mercy of God, being shaped by the endless mercies of God. This comes from uh, the end of chapter 11, the very beginning of chapter 12, this idea of God's mercy, that everyone is in need of God's mercy. Do you believe that? Everyone is in need of God's mercy. Now, when the Bible talks about giftedness, the gifts that God gives to believers. We're going to learn in chapter 12 that giftedness is given to each believer, each member of the body of Christ, to a certain proportion that God gives. So whatever your gift is, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't do you any good or anybody else in the church, in the body of Christ, any good for you to compare your giftedness to someone else's. This is not the way to measure things. Because God gives giftedness to each person differently. Okay? So don't measure yourself by, by other people. However, he doesn't say the same thing about mercy. As a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 11, he says that for every single person on the planet, they are shut up in disobedience. Every single soul is imprisoned in disobedience. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. And because everyone is shut up in disobedience, that is, that the law of God is good and perfect and righteous and holy. However, Paul's already showed us in Romans chapter 7 that the law and adherence to the law, or at least attempts to adhere to the law, does not bring about righteousness on our part, does it? What does the law actually do? How many of you have the Ten Commandments hanging in some place in your house? I do. I have the Ten Commandments hanging in, in my house. And what does that do for, for me? That, that reminds me and reminds my family of the holy and righteous character of God. These are things that have proceeded from the mouth of God. But the New Testament is very clear. We cannot gain any righteousness in God's sight by trying to follow the Ten Commandments. The law of God does not lead us to becoming righteous. It leads us to discover our own need for a Savior who is righteous. That's what the law is supposed to do. The law inspects us with a fine-tooth comb. It, it takes a magnifying glass to our soul and our mind. This is what Jesus did in his ministry. Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said. Anyone who commits adultery, right? It's, it's a sin, but I say to you, even if you look at someone, even if you look at someone with a perverse nature, an idea, with lust in your heart, you have so committed adultery. 
Jesus takes that magnifying glass, that law that the Jews thought, we're doing a pretty good job, and he put a magnifying glass on it, and he says, oh yeah, this is what that actually means. He takes a look into our soul, and so the mercy of God is not something that only certain people need in the church. It's not something that only certain people need according to their faith. No, everyone needs God's mercies. Everyone. So, a little recap from last time and the time before. And by the way, this is my first time to ever preach through Romans. Okay, I was talking with some other brothers, uh, other pastors a couple weeks ago. We were talking about books of the Bible that we've never preached all the way through yet. But they're on our list. Because we all believe that's the way, that's the best way to, to preach and teach in a church. Is to just go through all of scripture. Book by book. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And several of them said, well, I've been in ministry for 12 years and I'm just, I'm afraid of Romans. I just don't, I don't think I understand it 100% yet. And I was thinking, man, if, if understanding something completely is what kept me from preaching, I would not be preaching the word of God. Because every single book, for me, I don't know about you, there are confusing passages. There are places that I just cannot in my finite understanding, try to put it all together. But I, I do believe God wants us to preach and proclaim and teach the Word of God. This is one of those places in Romans chapter 11 that many preachers and teachers really struggle with. Christians struggle with. And sometimes, uh, just maybe skip right over it. I have an entire uh, sermon set. You ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon was an old, early 19th century, mid-19th century uh, Baptist preacher in London. By today's standards, he, he was the pastor of a mega church. He had thousands of people come and hear him preach. And I have his preaching encyclopedia. This is an encyclopedia of all of his sermons. It's massive, like multi-volume set. I think there are like 18 or 19 volumes. And there's an index in the very last volume. You can look up the index. You can say, okay, I am going to be preaching, let's say, through 1 Corinthians. What did, I wonder what old Spurgeon said about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go through there and index, find it's in volume three. You open it up to volume three and you can find it there. So I did that in curiosity when I was going through Romans and guess what? I didn't find, I think maybe one sermon that he preached from Romans chapter 11. He preached other books in Romans dozens of times. And I thought, well, thanks, Chuck. <laughs> you didn't help me much there. But it's true. This is my first time to preach through Romans and I've found that preaching through books of the Bible for the first time and the second time and the third time it's like cultivating a garden. Uh, two years ago or three years ago we started a little four by eight tomato bed in the back of our yard and cultivated the ground. It's not a, a raised bed but we did amend the soil a lot and the first year man we had tomatoes out our ears and the next year I thought hey it did well last year, it'll do good this year. Didn't do much to the soil. Kind of tilled it up a little bit. And I noticed the soil the second year was a little easier to till up. It was a little easier to work because the previous year. And this year, doing it again. It was really easy to work this year. I'm hoping it's the same way with Romans the next time I preach through Romans. But it has been difficult. I do want to encourage you to ask questions. Ask tough questions. I'll try to with you, find the answers as best we can. But 
Repetition is needed for better understanding of God's word. It's not just that way in preaching, it's that way in reading God's word in your devotional time. So I would encourage you to do that. Continue to read through God's word, even the more difficult passages. What we learned about Israel was that God has allowed a partial hardening, the Bible says, of ethnic Israel for two reasons. Number one was to extend mercy to the Gentiles. He says in the very beginning of Romans 11, he talks about how because God hardened the hearts of ethnic Israel, now the gospel would spread to the Gentiles and that was a good thing. So it had that purpose, it had a second purpose, and that was to move Israel, ethnic Israel, to jealousy. To jealousy, to envy. Now this is not a, a negative way of understanding jealousy or envy. There are negative ways of understanding jealousy and envy, but this is not one of them. It's actually for their good that they be moved to jealousy. If ethnic Israel is moved to jealousy through God's gospel going to the Gentiles and through the Gentiles and the church of Jesus Christ, then that's a good thing for them to be moved to jealousy and to see the fulfillment of all the promises in Christ through the church. Did you know that the Bible says in the New Testament that God's manifold wisdom, that is his multifaceted wisdom, that we can't see all of it at the same time, but it's multifaceted, it's manifold. The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed through, guess who? The church. The church. So if you want to know why it's important to be part of a body of Christ, a local body of Christ, that's good enough reason as any. That God wants to display through groups, through congregations like this, His manifold wisdom to the nations, yes, but also to Israel, who He is hoping to move to jealousy. That's why it's so important for us as a body of Christ is to seek to be beautiful to the world and to ethnic Israel. be gracious, to be merciful, to be holy, to want to please God, in the New as the New Testament says, in everything that we do, to be pleasing to Him. If you remember the story from Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, it's a story about two sons, not just one. It's a story about repentance, and it's actually the third story in a series of three so Jesus is going to, he's, he's, he sees that the, the legalists, the, the ethnic Israelites who were legalists, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were giving him trouble because he was going into the homes of sinners and having meals with them. And Jesus knew, he saw their mentality of judgment and he gave three stories he talked about a a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one who was lost he talks about a woman who loses a, a very small coin a small amount of money and she searches her house and she finds it and she tells her friends and they all rejoice with her they rejoice all of these parties re rejoice with the friend who went out and found the lost one. And then the final story is a story about a, a father who has two sons and the first son is representative of the Gentiles. 
This son takes his inheritance and he leaves home. He cannot wait to get away from home. You might have one of those in your household. You might have been one of those in your household. He takes the money and he runs. And he goes and he spends it on lavish living. He thinks he's got it all figured out. And he finds himself eating the food that the pigs are eating. And he says, I come to realize my father is a kind man. If I go back to that household, if I go back to where I grew up, to that household, at least being one of his hired hands, life is better. Maybe he will hire me. I don't expect to go back as a son, but if I can just go back and work for him, he's gracious. And so he decided to go. The Bible says he came to his senses and he went. All the while, there's a son, another son who never left home. He's still at home, but he's always out working in the field. Always working, always working, always working, always working. That's his identity. And when the son who left comes home, the father meets him halfway in the street. He puts his arms around him. He puts his best robe on him. He treats him like royalty. You're not going to work for me. You're my son who's come home. And we are going to rejoice. And everybody comes into the house, all the servants. And the father kills the fatted calf for him. And they celebrate. But there's one person who has not come in the house to celebrate. It's the older son who has worked and worked and worked and worked and never had a party thrown for him. And he confronts his father. I've stayed with you. I've done all these things for you. And what have you ever done for me? I have worked and worked and worked and worked. He sees the kindness of his father upon the son who returns. This is what Paul is saying God is doing in this age through the church. He is moving ethnic Israel to jealousy. That son who's on the outside, who's working and working and working. Will they see the mercy of God through you? Will they see the kindness and the grace of God through you, through the church? They should, because we have much to be thankful for. We have much to praise God for. He makes this statement in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. Many Christians are divided on this phrase. What does all Israel mean? Does it mean that someday in the future, all of ethnic Israel by, in some way will be saved? That the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church age is is a certain time period, a certain dispensation of God's work, and that, but that after that, all of Israel will be saved apart from Jesus Christ. That is not the way it's going to happen. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. When he comes onto the scene, who does he go to first? He goes to the house of Israel first. He doesn't say, God's going to take care of them in the end. It's for me to go to the Gentiles. No. And so when he says, so all Israel will be saved, he's talking about all Israel in the sense that he talks about Israel in chapter 9. That is, those who are Jews inwardly. In Galatians 6.16, he talks about the Israel of God. 
Sometimes when Paul talks about Israel, he's talking about ethnic Israel. Other times he's, think, he's talking about the true Israel of God who are marked not by circumcision or by keeping ceremonial laws or anything like that. They are marked by faith. Did you hear that? Marked by faith. It's faith in the Son of God. The Israel of God, those who were Jews inwardly. And what we come to discover at the end of chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles open there, in verse 22, which says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. What is Paul saying there? The same thing he says earlier in the book of Romans. I am obligated both to Jews and to Greeks. To Greeks and to barbarians. I must go to everyone. Why? Because God is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with God. This is why Paul in his second and third chapter in Romans, appeals and directs his attention to the Jews. And he says things like this, you who teach the law that people should not steal, do you steal? You who are teaching the nations not to do this and that and these other things, do you do those things? These are rhetorical questions with answers like, yeah, you do. So who needs grace? Who needs forgiveness? Who needs Jesus? Everybody. There's no partiality with God. And then he says this, Oh, the depth, verse 33, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I know that you've been waiting for bullet points. They're coming. They're all from chapter 12 verse 1. But what do we need to realize before we ever get there? The mind of God. When Job was suffering, you ever read the book of Job in the Old Testament? If you've never read the book of Job... And you're going through suffering or trials right now. You need to read it as soon as possible. If you have become entangled with prosperity gospel nonsense on TV and on the radio. If you've been entangled in that. You need to read the book of Job. And the gospels. But the book of Job. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And in the next verse he says, Who has ever pra-edokin? Who has ever first given? Have you ever had someone borrow something from you? You ever borrowed something from someone else? You ever owed somebody something? Someone owed you? That's the idea here. God owes no one. No one. Everyone is a recipient of His grace if you're breathing breath today. You are a recipient of His grace. 
Job comes to this conclusion after he loses everything in his life. Not only every material thing, not only his reputation, but even his physical health. He is in such pain, he would rather be dead. And he comes to the realization that Job has never, ever given God anything that God actually now owes him for. That's the prosperity gospel, by the way. The prosperity gospel says you can't outgive God. So you give God something, he has to give you something back. That is a false gospel. God has given you everything in Jesus Christ. Amen? And his grace is enough. So now we get to chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, after talking about God's mercy... He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is one of those verses in Scripture, verse 1 and 2 here, that's usually quoted by Christians in the church. But it's usually unhitched from that previous chapter. And if we do that, we don't get the full force of what, God is trying to show us in verse 1. It's only when we see it in the context of chapter 11 because he's already talked about God's mercy, hasn't he? If you rewind in verse 30 of chapter 11, for just as you were once disobedient to God but now have been shown what? Mercy because of their disobedience, that is ethnic Israel. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the what? Mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Verse 32, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show what? Mercy to all. This concept of mercy, all have been shut up through disobedience so that not a single soul could ever say it wasn't through mercy that I'm right with God. That no one would boast or brag. There is no boasting or bragging. Why? Because everyone has been shut up in disobedience. The law shows us that we need a Savior and now it is all up to who? God. God is free and He freely chooses to show His mercy and to shed His grace upon whomever he, cho- he chooses. And he does, graciously. Isn't God good? So Paul says now to us, he says now to those Roman Christians, he says now to them, knowing what you know, knowing what you know about ethnic Israel, knowing what you know about how God dealt with them in the Old Testament, now, Fear God. And now you're going to worship Him. And now you're going to serve Him. And now you're going to know Him. But those Old Testament sacrifices, that partial temporary atonement, there will be no animals involved in this. Jesus already paid the price for all your sin. Once for all. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father because the work is finished. He said that on the cross. It is finished. So what does the Christian life look like now? How do we worship? 
What does devotion look like in the Christian life? It is shaped by the endless mercies of God. That's why he says here in verse 1, I urge you, brethren. Now, you get a sense of Paul's attitude, don't you? His temperament throughout the entire book of Romans. He says things like, I'm obligated to these people. Far be it for me. I wish that I were accursed from Christ according to, if my brothers and sisters according to the flesh could be saved. This is a very passionate plea in this book. And so he urges now Christians, Gentile Christians, he says now to, to you and to me and to his readers in Rome, I urge you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. Why in the world does he add that? Why can't he just say, I urge you, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. That which is pleasing to him, which is your, your service of worship. No, he says, by the mercies of God. Some of your translations might say, according to God's compassion. According to his kindness. The word mercy here is a different Greek word that's used in chapter 11. It has a nuance to it. In chapter 11, the mercy that is talked about is usually the word for mercy that's used throughout the New Testament. But he uses one in chapter 12, verse 1, that means maybe a little more appropriately, God's pity. God's pity. See, we don't, we don't, like, uh, we don't like it when people pity us, do we? There's a pride in us that kind of bows up to that. Don't pity me. Don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> what this literally means is that Paul is saying, when you go to worship God with your life, when you present yourself to Jesus, do it by the mercies of God. Do it knowing that there is much in you for God to pity. Let there not be a bone of pride or arrogance in you when you approach the throne of grace. Remember how God rejected ethnic Israel because they thought they could show up and worship God flippantly. That they could live life however they wanted to as long as they carved out a little section for the Lord and gave him their little tithe, and gave them their little time at the temple, and did a few things here and there, don't think that you can repeat that same error. Because people of faith don't live that way. People of faith have a very good pulse on the mercy and the pity of God on their behalf. That we are constantly in need of God's grace. That we need him every hour, amen? So he says, I urge you by the mercies, by the pity of God, by the compassion of God to present yourselves, to present your bodies. It's not going to be the body of a lamb or a goat or anything like that. It's going to be your own body. It's to present yourself to him. See, there's no way you can get away from that because you are always with yourself always he's getting to the heart of worship 
a life shaped by the endless mercies of God. Richard Sibbs once said, everything that comes from God to his children, it is a mercy. Everything. The writer of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The original translation I think is a worm like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I, I see. The writer of Amazing Grace remembers God's grace and how far God has brought him. Being shaped by the endless mercies of God. His mercies, number one, help you remember your rescue. They help you remember your rescue. God's mercies do. In Exodus chapter 13, as they prepare for the very first time, the celebration of the Passover, God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, he says to them time and time again, he gives them instruction for how they're to celebrate it, and he says it's going to come in that day, later on, that your sons are going to ask you, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why, why do we celebrate this celebration? What, what's this for? He says, and you're to say to them, it is with a mighty hand that the Lord brought us out of the hands of the Egyptians. We were slaves. We were slaves and he rescued us. His mercies may help you remember your rescue. We must remember our rescue. Amen? In Judges chapter 2, as time went by, ethnic Israel forgot the Lord. In Judges 2.10, the Bible says that there, at that time, arose a generation didn't know the Lord and, that, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel how does that happen I'll tell you how it happens it happens when parents give their children and their grandchildren everything they want in the world and don't disciple them in the ways of God. That's how it happens. I know that's kind of point blank, but that's what happened. And that's what will continue to happen if we don't remember our rescue. If we forget, and we don't share our testimony, and we don't talk about the goodness of God. Our lives as Christians, Christians should be shaped by the endless mercies of God. Number two, his mercies may help you remember your rescue, but they may also help you realize your ongoing weakness. They help you realize your ongoing weakness and need for him. Psalm chapter 20, the psalmist writes a song. Some trust in chariots, others in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
See, there were many of their foreign enemies who thought if we build up our armies, if we have the greatest military technology, we'll win the battle. And Israel didn't have many of those things. And some of them wanted those types of things. And they thought if we just had chariots, we could stand against the Egyptians, against the Assyrians, against our enemies. If we just had those things, man, David understood it. The psalmist understood it. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, some in those things, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We might be weak on the world scale of things, but in Him we are strong. Amen? In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, we won't go there, but I'll remind you of a story of a king named Asa. Asa, in his early years as king, found himself in one of those situations. We are going against an army of millions and we cannot win. And you know what the first thing he did was? Acknowledged his weakness before the Lord. He fell on his knees and he prayed, God help us. Our only option. God help us. And God showed up. And God routed the enemy. And Asa gave praise and honor to the name of the Lord and he acknowledged his weakness. But later on in his reign, when he's in his mid to late 30s, 30 years of his reign, he comes against an enemy again and he forgets his weakness. He thinks that he's reached a point in his life when he's no longer weak, but he's strong. That's a temptation, isn't it, for Christians, especially Christian men. Men, listen to me. If you ever come to a place in your walk where you think you are strong, be careful. Be careful. Those who exalt themselves, he will humble. And if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. Our strength comes from Christ alone. Asa got to the letter point in his life and he thought, I can do this on my own. I'm not weak, I'm strong it makes an alliance with a foreign enemy instead of going to the Lord and the prophet of God is sent to him says you have acted foolishly why in the world after all these years of living on God's grace and mercy did you not continue to acknowledge your weakness before him and say I need you God I need you why did you make an alliance with a foreigner he says from now on from now on, you're going to be cursed. Your household's going to be cursed. Asa, instead of repenting and saying, you're right, Lord, I am weak, he doubled down, he bowed up against God, and he said, I don't care. I'm going to live the way I want to. He will humble you if you exalt yourself. Let his mercies help you realize your ongoing weakness. And then finally, and I close, his mercies may help you realign your devotion, your priorities. In Malachi chapter, well, in, in, in the book of Malachi, we, we actually studied this long ago. This is the last book of the Old Testament. I want to show you the attitude of God's people towards the end of the prophets before a few hundred years of God's silence to his people. Before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. See the state of things among the people of God. Chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. 
O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised thy name? He answers, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it, offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And he goes on. And he says, oh, that there were just one among you who had shut the gates to this useless, fake worship. Fake devotion. Going through the motions. Showing up to the temple. He says later on in the second chapter that they just, they sit there and they poke at the fire, the altar of sacrifice and say, my, how tiresome it is to serve the Lord. Let God's mercies and understanding his mercies in the gospel realign your focus. Realign your devotion and your priorities. Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God. With those mercies in mind, with your need for those endless mercies in mind, present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. Listen, worship is not a spectator activity. He says, present yourselves to God. Churches promise great worship experiences today. Hey, come to our church. There's a great worship experience waiting for you. As if worship were an event something to attend, something to participate in if it's worthy of your attention. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that worship is your life if you're a Christian. Will you present your bodies to Him by the mercies of God? Will you be fueled by the mercy of God knowing that you were shut up in obedience and that without his mercy every day we have nothing in the presence of God. We are enemies of God without Jesus, without the gospel, without what he's done for you and me, dying on the cross in our place, shedding his blood for us so that we can appear in the presence of God. Let that mercy of God through Jesus fuel everything that you do. Would you bow your head with me? I'm going to ask Mike to come again. And I'm going to pray and he's going to read this last verse from John 3. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, God, for your word today. Oh, Lord, help us. God, help us to be people who live and move and exist by your mercy. God, that your mercies, Father, would help us to realign our hearts in worship. Father, that your mercies would keep us tethered to that moment that you rescued us from our sin, that we would not forget 
Lord, that we would be nourished on the constant reminder through things like this supper that we just partook of. Lord, the reminder that we have no life outside of Christ. That we are all in need of your mercy. Thank you, Father, that you give it to us through Jesus and that is never ending.